Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Welcome to this week's edition of the Baseball America College podcast. I'm Teddy Cahill. Joining me as always is Joe Healy, and we've got a slightly different show for you today. Still largely the the same premise. Teddy and Joe talk about college baseball issues, and we have an interview guest. Uh, But instead of it being a a player or a coach, uh, we have Matt Brown, who runs Extra Points, which is a newsletter, and uh, he also runs a, a podcast, and he dives into kind of the business of college sports over there, a lot of off-the-field issues, and this summer has been a transformational one around college athletics, and so we wanted to, to you know, kind of dive into that here, and Matt Brown is going to help us do that run through some of the, the issues of the summer, like the name, image, and the likeness, uh, authorization, I guess, uh, of rights for, for athletes to, to profit off of uh, their own likeness in, in things like sponsorships, uh, the broader kind of realignment situation that, that was brought about by Texas and Oklahoma, leaving the Big 12 for the SEC, and you know some of the overall NCAA structure stuff that is now being debated ahead of a planned constitutional convention uh, later this fall in which the NCAA could dramatically reshape the way it's structured, or it might not, you know, they're, they're just gonna, they've got a lot to work through on that. So a lot happening off the field in, in college sports. So you know, before we really crank up with our, our fall coverage over at Baseball America and here on the podcast, we're, we're, we're definitely going to hit the ground running on that in September. Uh, we're going to kind of put a bow on this summer of upheaval around college athletics, uh, and Matt Brown is going to help us do that today. So uh, we're excited to have uh, this edition of the Baseball America College podcast presented by Rapsodo as it is every week. Rapsodo has become the industry standard in player performance data. Coaches use Rapsodo data as a measuring stick for player development and evaluation. The Rapsodo National Player Database is a free service that allows you to see how you stack up against your peers and provides a pathway to get discovered by scouts. You can check out the Rapsodo National Player Database at rapsodo.com slash national database. All right, Joe, you kind of brought Matt Brown into like my orbit more than a year ago, I guess around the time that he, he founded the newsletter Extra Points. He uh, previously wrote for SB Nation uh, covering kind of similar things. And, and then he uh, went out on his own and um, you, you can subscribe uh, to the newsletter. You can check him out on Twitter. Uh, so I would encourage you to do those things. I, uh, 
I am subscribed, Joe may or may not be subscribed. I don't know. But anyway, the point is, Joe, that you you brought Matt Brown kind of into my uh, into my attention sphere in, in college sports. And now it was your idea to, to bring him on the podcast. So uh, why, why don't you give kind of a, I mean, I, I kind of ran through this already, but what, why did you think that this was the, a, a guest that, that we should bring on, on the podcast? Yeah, as, as a, I am a subscriber as well to the newsletter. It's a good one, in my opinion. Good podcast, Going for Two, the name of the podcast. So check that out. Um, whenever you go to find our podcast, while you're there, look for his. Um, him and Brian Fisher. There are only two podcasts. That's right. It's this one and that one. That's right. Yeah, don't look any further. Like, that's if you've heard their other podcasts, that's not true. So I don't know what else to tell you. So, um, yeah, so find both of ours. Uh, but you're right. I mean, he, he, he kind of, right around the time, you know, actually a lot of it was just, you know, you're pandemic had just hit and there was a lot of uncertainty about college athletics, which we, we get into in the discussion we have with him, but, and me trying to make sense of some of it and try to get a feel for what was coming down the pike. And so I, I was, I was aware of his work. I'd read his book. I have, I've read his uh, college football book. He wrote, um, you know, called what if, where it deals with a lot of like, what if scenarios in college football history. So like I'm very aware of his work, but I became particularly interested when the pandemic hit because we were, we were all pretty uncertain about what was going to happen in college athletics. And it's, he's continued to be an interesting resource from a college baseball perspective, because while he doesn't necessarily talk a lot about college baseball explicitly, the kind of stuff he's covering has a lot of effect on college baseball. I mean, people who are willing to talk about and do it well, by the way, I don't mean this pejorative way, people who, who are willing to talk about the Texas, Oklahoma ramifications are a dime a dozen, right? There's a lot of people who can do that in a really smart, informed way, but he's able to also really give you the rundown of, Here's what's happening in the WAC realignment. And in college baseball, like, yes, the Texas Oklahoma realignment to the SEC, that really does matter. That matters a lot. But when we talk about the whole of college baseball, the stuff that's really happening below the surface, you could argue is actually more important to college baseball because the reality of the situation is that while, yes, it does help the SEC in baseball to get Texas and Oklahoma, if, even if it didn't, they still would have made that move, right? If Texas and Oklahoma were the two worst baseball programs in, in the Big 12, if they were as good as they are at football historically, they'd still be making that move. So, so much of this stuff happens outside of college baseball and without a lot of thought towards college baseball. Beyond that, though, there are a lot of little things that are happening that do have a lot of effect. So it's low major conference realignment. It's NIL. We, you know, we talk about that with him a little bit, and you introed that a little bit there in NIL beyond just the most famous players you can think of and the, you know, Bryce Young at Alabama with the supposedly close to a million dollar deal for NIL, like that, that kind of stuff set aside, there are a lot of opportunities for people beyond those sports. Uh, you know, we talk about some of the stuff that, you know, po the possibility of a football league breaking off, you know, and becoming its own thing, the SEC with some other like-minded universities, football programs making their own thing. Well, how does that affect the smaller sports? How does conference realignment affect smaller sports? And he was covering those kinds of things on a really detailed level that I just wasn't getting in a lot of other places. So that kind of drew me to to his work. Um, and so we get into some of that stuff here. Um, we, we take some big picture topics that a lot of people are talking about and really kind of try to drill down a little bit to, okay, but what does it mean for baseball and, and softball? And some, you know, he, he injects softball into it a little bit, I think, which is the right way to think about it. Because while we don't talk about softball on this podcast necessarily, um, in a lot of cases, baseball and softball are going to be tied together in, in, in a lot of this legislative stuff. So I think it is important to think of it that way. So um, while so the reason why I wanted to have him on just to tie it back together is that 
you know, we could spend some time on the big picture stuff everyone's talking about. We did talk about the SEC realignment stuff. Um, he's able to give us a lot better idea of what's happening below the surface, which I think is actually the stuff that ends up having more of an impact on college baseball than the big picture stuff that everyone is talking about. Yeah. And, you know, th there's a lot of, you know, off field stuff right now that is going to, you know, it, it just seems like it's having a profound change on college athletics. Um, for a very long time, people in the media talked about and, and people in college athletics talked about, well, you know, why can't uh, a, a football player get paid to sign an autograph? Or why can't, you know, a, a swimmer give a swimming lesson? You know, the, these were things that, that were outlawed and, and for a long time, you know, just felt like they were verboten that, that this was the amateurism was the bedrock that college athletics was built on and, and, and anything that, that cut into that was going to cause a major problem. And then over the last year and a half, I, two years since California passed, it's uh, it's law, which allowed allows for uh, college athletes to profit from what, what's known as their name, image, and likeness, which is, again, just kind of a fancy way of saying the, or the legalese way of saying that, that you're allowed to engage in sponsorship opportunities. And, you know, the California law specifically says that you can give lessons in your, in your sport, something that the NCAA had previously outlawed that that law was passed and then other states followed with their own laws and all of a sudden this uh th this July uh, on July 1st uh the NCAA just said okay fine like we, we fought this long enough it's it's now fine and you know college sports seems to be doing just fine with with this now being legal and um, you know, so now I, th there are just so many things changing and, and you heard uh, Mark Emmert, president of the NCAA say at some point this summer that maybe maybe the association needs to do less. You know, maybe we, we need to stop trying to legislate all the, the tiny little details and, and really be here for, uh, you know, some specific things like running tournaments and, and managing health and safety and, uh, you know, that, that sort of thing. And, um, you know, again, th this is the kind of thing that just felt like it was unthinkable for a long time. Like, why would the president of the NCAA say something like that? But things are things are changing rapidly, uh, and, and this summer definitely seems to have been a flashpoint. So I think there's there's a lot to to talk about in this realm, and uh, definitely looking forward to to doing so here today uh, with Matt Brown, um, who you can find on Twitter at Matt Brown EP, and all the links to uh, to subscribe find the newsletter to subscribe to the newsletter to find his podcast uh probably all easiest to find right there at, at his twitter matt brown ep um so yeah uh an, an exciting exciting subjects to dive into if you're if you're into them uh and even if you're not like the if you're the person that's been kind of tuning out the nil stuff um we're, we're we we do a good job here i think at making it much more baseball specific so we're not not really just talking about like how a football player might be able to make a bunch of money in this marketplace now or how how football is is driving all of the the, the expansion and realignment details we're 
we're, we're trying to come at this from a baseball perspective. So I, I think, again, I, a lot has changed. A lot is changing. And, and I think there's a lot to, to be learned from, uh, from digging into some of this stuff right now. Today on the Baseball America College podcast, we are happy to be joined by Matt Brown, who runs the excellent newsletter, Extra Points, I guess Media Empire there, Extra Points, uh, website, newsletter, podcast, the whole spiel. Uh, Matt, we're, we're happy to have you here. There's a lot been, that's been happening around college athletics off the field, which is what you focus on there. And so what we want to dive into to some of that here today on uh on the baseball america college podcast so thank you for joining us hey it's it's my pleasure i'm happy to do it all right so i guess let's just take this broad strokes here this summer has been active on the off the field front in in college athletics you have uh the name image and likeness uh laws taking effect this summer and the fallout or lack of fallout from that you had Mark Emmert coming out and saying that the NCAA maybe needed to do less. Uh, you have a lot of thoughts about, uh, you know, just in, in the ether going around about what the NCAA needs to do and now some activity potentially towards reform. And then, of course, Texas and Oklahoma leaving the Big 12 for the SEC has created a lot of uncertainty in terms of conference alignment. Uh, the, the Big Ten and the Pac-12 and the ACC are doing their alliance thing. And there's some low-level uh, conferences that are also in expansion mode. So there's just a lot that, that's been, been going on in terms of off-the-field stuff. Where do you, broadly speaking, I guess, where is this now headed? Is this headed towards a more professional college sports model, something closer to the status quo, a split of Division I? Just where, where does all of this lead eventually? It's, it's a good question because I, I think you're right to frame a lot of these events happening on parallel tracks that are all kind of heading towards a, a, a similar conclusion. And there's, I, th I honestly think there's a couple of different directions all of this could go. We could have a world where the Division I membership remains relatively stable and the NCAA, uh, the scope of what they're responsible for decreases enormously to the point where we're going to conference individual um, regulations become a much bigger deal. And the NCAA is there to, to run particular championships and maybe to do a little bit with health and safety. And that's about it. Um, we could also see a world where the NCAA splinters and we end up with a several different organizations specific for each sport. There, there, was, there was some momentum even before this summer in Division One, to move FBS football out of the purview completely of, of NCAA. I mean, the NCAA doesn't, doesn't run it right now, but have college football run by a different entity. And everybody else, uh, you know, that entity takes care of enforcement and, and regulations, and the NCAA just focuses on everything else. I can see a world where we have that, but also for basketball, and even potentially for baseball and softball. Um, we, we have this for emerging sports right now. There's, there's, no, there's no guarantee that the NCAA has to be the thing that runs the record books and the championships for every single sport, especially since we saw last year that, uh, you know, maybe they're not as good at that as, as we thought that they were when, when you put in a couple of wrinkles. Um, a, a lot of I think this fall is going to be pretty pivotal heading into not just this constitutional convention, but to what. Uh, kind of alternative models for college athletic governance that power brokers want to, to put forward. And if I was a baseball or a softball coach 
or if I was a small conference commissioner and I am not thrilled with everything that's happened over the last six weeks, I think now is the time to grab a microphone. Now is the time to write a white paper and start pushing your vision. And there's still time for your vision to kind of to, to, to pass around and shape what things are going to look like over these next couple of months. Um, although it, if, if people don't do that, then the, the squeakier, bigger wheels are going to get the grease. And that's generally the biggest athletic programs. Yeah, it's interesting you, you bring that up because, you know, baseball is, I think, a sport kind of ripe for that kind of thing. It's a partial scholarship sport. And you have schools on the far end of the spectrum that would love to fund a full roster of scholarships. On the other end yeah. of the spectrum, you have schools that aren't even funding the current level of scholarships, which is 11.7 in baseball. So I think you've got that, and you know, you would know this better than I, so that's why we have you on, but I have to imagine it's one of the more unequal across division one in terms of the haves and have nots, not just based on that, but on things like facilities and and budgets and things like that. So I'm interested to hear you say that because it it has always struck me and there, I know we just have spitball conversations in the college baseball media about breaking off in that way. So how how much appetite do you think there really is for that kind of thing? And um, I mean, do you see that being something that football probably has to go first on that, but is that, I mean, how real are those conversations that you've heard? You know, they, I think they could be very real. And you're, you're right. Baseball would be an Olympic sport that I would point to is where there are not just enormous gaps between haves and have nots, but also some pretty significant philosophical differences, right? If you're in the SEC, you might look at your baseball and, and also potentially your softball programs, especially now that Oklahoma is coming into the league, as um, every bit of a, of a traditional revenue sport as women's basketball or even men's basketball. And you know, you can get thousands of people to come to a game and you know that your media rights and broadcasting those games are going to be valuable. And if you could, you're right. If, if you could, you'd give every one of those athletes a scholarship. And then there are others, um, particularly I think at the low major level where this is very explicitly a, a tuition play. It's very explicitly an enrollment driver. Um, and it's, it's, if, if you, if you catch lightning in a bottle and you win 40 games and you make the college, you win your conference, like that's wonderful, but that's not really the point of the program. The point of the program is to recruit another 25 men on campus that are willing to pay some semblance of tuition. One potential way that you could structure this independent of having baseball run by its own, its own entity would be to, to rejigger the way that division one is structured around Olympic sports and say, okay, so for both baseball and softball or swimming or track or anything, we're going to have a division that's, you know, 80 to full hundred percent funded for scholarships. And we're going to have a division that more closely resembles the system right now, where it's a small, much smaller percentage. And then we're going to have a division three model where it's, where there's no scholarships. It's, it's Patriot, it's Ivy league time. Right. And then schools can self-select based on, you know, the number of sports they want to do on, on different levels. And I've talked to conference commissioners at the, you know, the mid to low major level that have some interest in this, because if you're a resource starved institution, you might look and say, we can't afford to do this for every one of our programs. We still want to be in division one but we could potentially fully fund baseball and softball. And so maybe we're going to try to do that at a higher level. Like we're a, an upper level, a sun or conference USA program. And then for everything else, we're going to do a division three model. And as long as we're title nine compliant, that might still provide a, a, a good experience for our athletes and our, and our, and our program. You can't really do that right now under the current governance model. But these are some of the questions that are going to be brought up in the constitutional convention. Like, you know, I, I have a thing up on my on newsletter right now, where I've been asking people to submit their own ideas for what they want, call it NCAA 3.0 to look like. And the two bits of feedback that I've gotten the most from fans, from administrators, and even from athletes are, number one, they want the new NCAA's primary focus to be on health, safety, and advocacy of athletes. 
which is what it was when it was first founded back when people were killing each other on football fields and Teddy Roosevelt was ready to ban the whole thing. The other thing that they want is they want reforms of the, the what, they, what we're calling the governance model, because trying to, to squeeze 350 schools into one kind of into one system where they could not be more different in their goals and their resources and what they're trying to do. Um, there's a lot of appetite for that to change. And I think there's for baseball and softball in particular, there's a number of different ways where it could lead to much better outcomes for fans and athletes. It's just going to depend on somebody championing it. And like, this is what kind of made me interested in college baseball to begin with, you know, last summer was you, I think you saw more. And, and before that you saw more coaches being willing to, to take public advocacy positions about here's some structural changes we need to do to make this, a, to, to grow the sport. Um, and I would, I would, I would, I would hope that that energy continues to um, create the governance model that uh, coaches and athletic directors and athletes want for these sports. Broadly, again, here a year ago, it, college sports was in a, a kind of a dismal summer, not just in light of uncertainty about the fall, but there were sports getting cut at schools from the Ivy League to you know, Stanford to Furman to Chicago State, every pretty much every level of of college sports was going through some some level of cuts. And then in the last year, we've gotten to the point where the football, the basketball, the baseball coaching markets um, were as hot as they'd ever been. People were paying buyouts left and right. And, you know, this summer has been seemingly all about the money. How did is it just a matter of the market not, you know, bouncing back from the initial crash of, of March that, that led to this happening? Or where, where did, how did college sports avoid some of the more doomsday scenarios of the last, of, of last summer to, to go to a point where it seems like it's back to a booming business? I'm not sure I'm ready to say it's, it's back to a booming business yet. There's still some pretty significant financial headwinds, but, but you're right. It, you know, I think last time we were talking, you know, last summer and I talked to several academics and even people in athletic departments about this, there was a, a concern, particularly at the division three level that a lot of schools were going to close. It wasn't a matter of, of saving a baseball team or saving a soccer team. It was a matter for smaller tuition dependent institutions of saving the university. And there's even a small number of division one schools that are really not on great financial footing right now, structurally. One of the reasons that the, the apocalypse didn't happen was because of the federal government, the, the CARES Act and, and uh, HERF sent a ton of money to higher education. And so a decent amount of that money ended up in athletic departments, particularly to do things like, like pay uh, for testing, pay for increased medical uh, supplies, and, and, and to help kind of tide over the initial um, financial uh, deficit caused by the pandemic. You're able to use this to replace lost revenues. Nobody's using that money to like build a new softball stadium. But that provided a stopgap that made, uh, made things a little bit more possible. We also didn't see enrollment plummet as much as I think it was projected to, especially among state flagship universities or, or some larger institutions, where it really hurt was at the community college and JUCO level, which is you know, not, not generally what we're talking about here. Um, so those two things together and the fact that hey, now we have vaccines and people generally are feeling a little bit more bullish about going to events, albeit sometimes with some level of restriction, um, that, that all helped. Um, but that doesn't change the fact that higher education and athletic department finance broadly wasn't really in a great place 
before the pandemic, especially for schools outside of like your top eight conferences. If you are a Midwestern or Northeastern or Pacific Northwest regional institution, um, you still have a bunch of really big problems. If you are like the, the, the third or fourth tier regional school in your state, there's a good chance you have some big problems that, that you're going to need to resolve. You just were given a little bit more time to do it. We'd be remiss if we didn't talk more explicitly about NIL with you. I would venture to guess, I don't just say this to blow smoke, but I mean, it, you're probably as kind of engrossed in this stuff as, as anybody else who's covering it. Not only is it your, your bread and butter, but also you yourself have played in the marketplace, you know, uh, with your company. Um, you know, you wrote written extensively about some of the, the, the more catchy things that have come along, such as the, the situation with BYU having their football walk-ons be supported in this way. Um, just generally speaking, what have you learned about NIL so far? Um, how, you know, how has it, um, how has it played out to the extent that you thought it would? And what are some things that maybe have, have stood out to you in terms of things you, you might not have anticipated? Yeah, that's, it's a great question. It's a very broad question. And I, I think what I would say right now is I still think the, the NIL marketplace now is going to look very different from the one in six months. And it's going to look very different from the one six months from now. Um, you know, two, two and a half months into this, um, there's still a lot of, of uncertainty. For one, a lot of athletes have not even begun to participate in this. I've talked, I actually just got off the phone with a, a, an individual that runs a major NIL marketplace who's expecting the number of athletes that they have on their service to quadruple over the next couple of weeks as athletes get back to campus, uh, begin their seasons and have more meetings specifically about how to participate. Um, and there's still a lot of price uncertainty, not just with athletes not sure how to price themselves, but for brands too. Because when you think about the kind of companies that I think are, are most equipped to take advantage of working with an athlete. They're going, most of them are hyper-local. They're restaurants, they're bars, they're retail establishments within a specific market, fireworks places, you know, like, you know, those kind of, those kind of outlets. A lot of them have never run influencer marketing before. They're not in the business of, of calculating CPM. They're not in the business of buying Facebook ads. And some of these marketplaces can be a little bit less intuitive and working with agents is less intuitive. And a lot of the agents don't even know what the rules are yet because they vary so much from state to state. So that's, that's all a long way of saying that I, I think the, the amount of money that an athlete is going to be able to get for a social deal and who's going to be looking for social deals is, is going to change a lot. And, and there, were, there was a big incentive to, to get in on this in July, because if you signed a deal early, you would get earned media, which would increase the value of your spend, right? I, I think, could be wrong, but I think I was the first brand to do a deal with a Purdue football player. And that means that like I got like three or four different Purdue websites to write about my deal. And it was like a backup offensive lineman. It's a great kid. Um, and it was, you know, a hundred bucks, 150 bucks wasn't a huge deal, but that increased the reach of my campaign. If I did that same deal now, I wouldn't get any of that because now there's 30 different Purdue athlete uh, deals. And, and that, and that's going to change the calculus. I think of some of these brands wanting to get involved. When you were looking into the BYU deal. And so I guess the, the BYU football deal is that yeah. uh, a local company paid tuition for the BYU walk-ons. And that is of definite interest to any partial scholarship sport out there because, well, a walk-on in football is one thing, but you know, if, if you look at baseball, most people are not on full money. Yep. Uh, very few people are on full money. So if somebody wanted to step up and do that, the thinking or maybe fear, depending on where you are, uh, is that that would have a real impact on a partial scholarship sport. And you kind of, your, your takeaway from that seemed to be that 
this probably isn't repeatable around the country in football because most programs don't care that much about their walk-ons. They just aren't that visible, but that a partial scholarship sport might be able to take advantage of that. Uh, can you kind of expound on that a little bit? Sure. So, you know, with BYU specifically, this is a program that I've gotten to know pretty well. It's where my wife went to school. It's where uh, yeah, I'm, I'm relatively well-sourced. Um, BYU might have the cheapest tuition Certainly of any FBS school, it, they might, they're going to be in the conversation for the cheapest tuition of anybody in Division One. If you're, if you're an LDS athlete, a Mormon athlete, it's th- that's like three grand, a little over three grand, which means that you can then give a thousand bucks to every, all 85 scholarship players and pay the tuition of the walk-ons. The school told me almost all of them are LDS. Whole thing's going to set you back about 300 grand. Now, like that's big money to you and I, right? But like, if we're a big enough company, that's not insurmountable. To do that same deal at Ohio State or Clemson is going to cost twice that much money. And at Stanford, it's going to cost four times that much money, right? Eight times that much money. And at those bigger programs, yeah, you're right. The walk-ons aren't going to play. A walk-on might crack Clemson's too deep once every four years, like one guy. At BYU, a place that has all kinds of roster management problems with kids going on these two-year missions, walk-ons are going to play often. They might not start often, but they're going to get snaps at multiple position groups. And that's a fan base. Sustainable, but there's a lot of other sports. Like you're, you're right. If, if a brand decided to do this for a partial scholarship sport and their, their goal was to give that team a competitive advantage, I think it would be significant. Like, you know, I'm not super in, uh, entrenched in the college baseball community, but even I know enough that if you mention Vanderbilt, SEC fans are going to get all mad online because of this idea that their endowment and their academic um, scholarship situation allows them to kind of quote unquote oversign baseball players and, and pay tuition for, for more athletes because they can get them on academic deals. I know, you know, in Texas and Nevada and Georgia, there are similar state scholarship programs. I've had, I've had coaches tell me, yeah, if I'm trying to fill out my swim roster, I could find someone that has a three, six GPA and they're not quite as good. I'm still going to take them because they're free because they're going to be on the, the academic side. It's going to take care of them. So if you could, if there was a, if you could find a brand to do that for baseball, I think it would be a, a big time recruiting advantage. And if you did that over two or three years, even for a kind of middling or average baseball program, I think you could see some significant, um, you know, on the field advantages relatively quickly. I, I mean, maybe maybe not in a place like the SEC, but I'm trying I'm trying to think of like you're in the MAC and you've got one school that's going to pay tuition for everybody on their roster over three years. I like that team's chances of winning a conference title, given that not everybody else in that league is going to be fully funded. One of the uh, more, um, I'm not sure how to, how to quite put it, but one, one of the, the big news items we've had in college baseball the last couple of years has been the um, plan put forth last year uh, by Michigan coach Eric Backage and a number of others for a new college baseball scheduling model. It's no secret to anyone who follows the sport that one of the big challenges the sport has is that it starts in the winter, essentially. Um, and that's not great for a lot of the country, even in quote unquote warm weather places. Um, what was your reaction to that? Um, and what did you kind of hear as you kind of talked through that idea a little bit? I know you did a little bit of digging on it uh, with people around college athletics, because it, it strikes me that when it was first put forward, it was uh, greeted with a round of applause from everyone in, in our circle in college baseball. But because, you know, some people can be myopic sometimes by just looking at what's immediately in front of them. Um, it seemed like there was maybe some steam loss and certainly the pandemic and lost season, all that stuff played into it. 
Um, but it seems like maybe as they started to dig under the hood a little bit, maybe some of that enthusiasm has waned a little bit. And now, you know, I couldn't even exactly tell you where they are in terms of trying to get this stuff moving forward. So um, I'm curious what your reaction was there and, and what, just what you heard in talking through that. Sure. So the, the way this has been described to me is that there are not a ton of athletic directors right now at the division one level whose primary or even secondary concern right now is about baseball or softball. And that's even true at the couple of places where that athletic director came from the baseball or softball community. And what a couple of them have explained to me is that the best coaches are the ones that are coming in there with these kind of proposals. And I did all the work for you. Like I came in, I'm pushing for this. I want to take the leadership on it. I want to take the slings and arrows. I just need you to back me up, but you don't have, it's not going to take 40 hours of your time. And when that's the case, you know, nine times out of 10, the is like, awesome. Um, with the initial response that I heard, I think was very similar to yours. I even wrote about this on extra points. Like, I think it's great. I, I live in Chicago. I'm from Columbus. I actually started my journalism career writing about some big 10 baseball and man, in like late April, it's dismal. It's, it's, it is, it's hard to get people to these games, even if there's some good athletes there when it's like 41 and cloudy and, and sleety. And it's, it's just not fun. And, and you, you could build a better product, especially in a world where minor league baseball is becoming less uh, prevalent um, by making college baseball and college softball a little bit more consumer friendly. I, I, my, my reading right now is like, this is a good idea that people are okay with, but with the pandemic and now with constitutional reform and NIL and so many of these schools were just so overwhelmed by all of that. They haven't had a chance to think about it. I think if, if we, if this was a softball, a softball podcast or a volleyball podcast or a hockey podcast, and we had other structural questions about what's best for those sports, I, I think we'd have something similar. The only thing a lot of these folks are thinking about right now was how do we make sure we don't get sued? How do we handle name image and likeness? Where's my school going to be playing? How do I balance my budget? And I'll think about the other, other steps of that pyramid when those base which which sucks if you're like really passionate about one of those other sports but i think that's the administrative reality right now so i think that kind of dovetails to to this baseball you know i mean they, they, it has some priorities some people would say that the revising the schedule is there some people would point to the failed effort to get a third full-time assistant coach of a couple of years ago and others would point to wanted to increase 11.7 scholarships. So if there were a commissioner of college baseball and he hired you as a consultant to say, how do we go about advancing any of these legislative ideas um, you know, or, or just improving the game? How, how, do we, how do we make the biggest impact? What, what's your answer uh, as to like ideas, steps for, for baseball to, to get higher up on the, on the priority sheet? It's a tough question. And I, I think I would be asking other coaches or other administrators who are passionate about baseball and just think, is it in our best interest to be tied to a world where football is going to be priority one, two, and three every single time, and then basketball, and then maybe some other things, particularly with anything to do with the conference office or the NCAA? I, I would study hard the idea of just having a college baseball and college softball association. And just say we're going to we're going to create our own definition of amateurism if that's something that's important to us and our own standards and we're going to try to expedite some of this decision making because this is a product that's important to us and if schools want to be a part of it great but we can't wait and there's always going to be another calamity happening with with football and basketball 
And maybe there are some, some dedicated reasons why that's not a good idea, but I, I think I would, you know, I'd try to get the 40 page white paper about that and, and study it. Because if, if it turns out then you have to stay in here, then that becomes a question where I'm not, I'm not sure of the best answer right now, because broadly speaking, I think when these coaches say we need to, we need to start our season in warmer weather, we want to, we should have the option to be able to have more coaches to provide a better coaching experience for our athletes and more scholarship money because that money does exist. And it's not fair to put this, this financial burden on athletes. I think those are both great ideas. I think any major conference that opposes those ideas is not living up to the ideals that they like to talk about in press releases. You have the money, you should be spending it on athletes. Um, but if, if it's, if it's getting caught up in a bureaucratic quagmire, then I think you have to change the bureaucracy. We talked about at least a little bit tangentially about the big realignment news with Texas and Oklahoma. But I think for, for sickos like me, I think one of the more interesting things is what's happening at the kind of from a bottom up standpoint in conferences like the WAC and Southland, the A-Sun, to a lesser degree, the OVC. And a lot of what's driving this is, is FCS football. Um, but it strikes me as those seem like kind of, especially in the WAC, just some really weird marriages we have in that conference. And it, it reminds me a little bit of there's, you know, kind of some consternation about the idea that, you know, Texas Tech has to go to Morgantown to play midweek basketball games. Um, now we're going to be asking maybe Abilene Christian to go play a baseball series at Sacramento State. Um, so <laughs> what is the reaction among people who aren't involved on the football side in these conferences to now having these really kind of strange mixes of, of programs in these leagues? It, no, it's interesting because it isn't just FCS football that's driven some of these realignment decisions, but the conversations that I've been hearing over the last year, and this was true before the pandemic, and I think it's more true now, is that it's not just about FCS football. That's part of it. With the WAC, honestly, basketball is just as big of a driving force here as, as, as football. I, I've talked to ADs and people in that conference office who think our goal is to be a multi-bid basketball conference. And we think that we can, we can get to that point eventually, especially given the size of some of these schools. I haven't heard baseball come up once, but I've heard basketball just as much as I've heard football. And there's some optimism within the, the new A-Sun, which you know, some of that expansion is driven by football. But like, we think we could be very competitive in, in, in other sports here as well. But the, the driving force beyond those two things has been geography and institutional fit, in part to, to, to help with some of that Olympic sports travel considerations. You know, I, I think... There's a lot of commissioners and a lot of coaches that look over the last decade and think because of football, we've had some already had some very weird conference alignments. The American athletic as a, as a group of like-minded institutions makes no sense. There's almost no like unifying institutional identity between any of those schools, right? There's, there's, there's uh, private um, highly selective research focused schools. There's regional public schools. There's urban schools. There's ECU that's there's, that's it's there's not it's they're in the north they're in the south they're in wichita like there's there's the only unifying thing is um we care about football and that tends to 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 lean towards instability it's not a great experience for um olympic sports so you know when i look at the, the whack and I, I look at the a sun and, and you know maybe some changes happening in the southland even though some of those look weird geographically they are born out of trying to be with schools that are more similar you know, you know, the what's trying to do, I mean, what the A Sun's trying to do on their new football side is we want to create a confederation here of larger southern state universities, and that's what Kennesaw is, and northern out north Alabama, Jacksonville 
state, like they, they have some similarities. And that the, the WAC, even though they're not there yet, like we want to be larger regional state universities and, and private schools um, within the Southwest. Um, and that's what most of those schools are now. There's, I guess, a couple outliers, and we'll see what happens with those. And we'll see what happens with some of these other leagues, because I, I can tell you, most FCS conferences and most leagues right now that don't sponsor football but are Division One, they're having these similar calls. Well, so we've covered a lot of ground here, uh, but let's really get down to brass tacks and ask you a difficult question. So, Matt, we're gonna we're gonna ask you about your your favorite sandwich here in a second. Um, I will filibuster for a moment to kind of give you a chance to to gather your thoughts on this important topic that affects us all. But we ask every guest for their favorite sandwich, and we leave it broad. You can give us a sandwich that you make at home. Uh, you can give us a sandwich you enjoy from some place locally. Um, we we have had people give hot dogs as an answer, just to give you an idea of how open we are about what how you define a sandwich. So uh, please, Matt Brown, describe to us your favorite sandwich. And you know, I live in Chicago, which I think is is a great food town. It's a great sandwich town because. <laughs> When the weather is so garbage for seven months out of the year, mm-hmm. you need some food that's going to stick to your ribs so you can hibernate. But when, when I, when I think right. honestly of like the best ones, it's when I used to live in New Orleans and um, the best po'boys I ever had there weren't, wasn't anything in the quarter. They're generally in the back of liquor stores <laughs> where there's like a, a, a deli. There used to be one near the, nearby the school that I taught. Um, you know, just lettuce, tomato, mayo, and some fried shrimp on, on that, the, that delicious po'boy bun and roll. And, um, you know, I've never been able to find any place that sells po'boys outside of Louisiana that gets the bread right. And so, sometimes the filling's right, and you can get good jambalaya and good gumbo and other, and, and other places. And, you know, Louisiana natives go all over the country and start restaurants. But um, I, I, anywhere, I haven't, I haven't had the bread that's the same anywhere outside of South Louisiana. And, uh, and I miss it. And hopefully I can go back uh, maybe when the weather's garbage here again and uh, <laughs> enjoy New Orleans. Cause it's been a little while since I've been back. It, it reminds me of uh, probably the best piece of sandwich advice I've ever received. And actually it's one of those things. I don't remember if I, somebody actually gave me this advice or I maybe heard it on a podcast. It feels like something like maybe Dan Rubenstein said on the solid verbal one time that like the way you can really elevate your sandwich experience is invest in good bread. You know, because it really elevates an average sandwich to an above average sandwich and a good sandwich to a great sandwich. And I don't know that, frankly, truer words have ever been spoken. <laughs> Dan is somebody whose sandwich advice I would I would take as the gold standard. That's right. Um, and if you're ever in Chicago and, and, and you, you're, you're buddies with him, you have to try his pizza. Like Dan is one is is a great reporter and he's a great radio personality and he's, he's a great human being to be around. He is an otherworldly chef we should all be so fortunate to have as much pizza in our lives as uh, as he has in his no doubt <laughs> yeah but between him and, and, and mike felder like this is this is the best place to be for uh you know this college sports reporter people slash pizza nerds i am right. uh, it's a little bit hard for me to lose some weight <laughs> well you know going into football season probably not the time for that time to time to bulk up for the winter anyway so <laughs> that's yeah that's that, that's i'm telling my wife y'all said that <laughs> uh well we really appreciate you taking the time today uh to, to go over some of this big picture stuff um you know definitely interesting times afoot in college athletics and, and especially this fall going into that constitutional convention in a couple months so matt we, we really appreciate you you joining the baseball america college podcast today 
No, it's it's my pleasure, uh, friends. I, I can't guarantee that I'm going to write about college baseball every uh, every week or anything. But if you're interested in this kind of off the off the field sort of issues, uh, I think you probably enjoy extra points, which you can find at extrapointsmb.com. It is an excellent newsletter. We enjoy it here, so uh, definitely check that out. If uh, if you've made it this far in the episode, you'll, you'll probably enjoy it. Thank you again to Matt Brown for joining us today on the Baseball America College Podcast. Uh, Joe, we could dive into this at a number of different points, I suppose, but here's what I found to be most interesting. Well, I should say most interesting. Here's what I kind of gravitated to the most. The idea that in a potential new NCAA power structure that things might be much more sports specific. This was something that Mark Emmert actually mentioned in that same interview where he talked about the NCAA doing less that they would be more open to, you know, sports specific rules rather than making there be rules for across all sports, be more open to individual sport governance. And, you know, Matt Brown said that he felt like maybe that's the best way forward for baseball to advance its interests is to find a way to separate either by itself or, or with softball in a, a stick and ball alliance to, uh, you know, to, to bring their own governance structure within the NCAA. Nobody really has any idea what that might look like yet. That, that's a process that just is going to have to play out as, as the NCAA goes through its, its uh, constitutional process. But that is a very interesting idea that, you know, baseball could find a way to, to, provide more of its own governance and that that might free up some of the bureaucratic backlog that it has fought uh, for, for many years now in terms of adding scholarships, adding coaching spots, season, start time, recruiting calendar, all, all the rest of it that, that it has to push through NCAA bureaucracy if it could find a way to, to separate itself from some of that. Yeah, I'm with you. That's what I gravitated toward. I mean, there was a reason why we kind of followed, followed up on it and stuck there with it for a little, little while longer. Cause that was, that was something I had not anticipated him saying, you know, frankly, something that wasn't even really on my radar, but it, I mean, it makes, makes a lot of sense. And I think you can, you see little, uh, we get little windows into what that might look like here and there. Right. So like, I guess the example I would give, and we can only, we only have these narrow examples, but you know, you look at NCAA hockey, for one. And, you know, I don't know how many college hockey fans we, we have listening, probably a few, but um, you look at division one hockey and it looks pretty different from what um, division one, anything else looks like, I would say. Well, there is no division one, right? It's all just, they're all in it together. Right. Exactly. Yeah. I guess I should see that. I mean, that, that kind of, I guess, illustrates my point might be <laughs> by saying that incorrectly, like college hockey looks so much different than really anything else. And sure. Okay. Geography plays a role. I get it. Like there are some challenges that were not man-made, let's say like it just so happened to be, well, if we're all going to do this, like this is the way it kind of has to be because of the way these schools are, are aligned. So I get it. But, um, but it is very, very different than really anything else that, that we have out there. Um, I think you can even use some baseball examples, right? I mean, like Dallas Baptist does not play division one sports in anything but baseball. And nope. it is just fine. <laughs> like the world has not ended. Um, but I mean, I think that would also solve like, so on that point, I think it would also solve some of the conference issues we have, right? Where conferences are searching for members 
And, you know, baseball is not really driving the bus on this, obviously, you know, in some cases it's football, in some cases it's basketball, depending on what, you know, what school we're talking about, but those are the sports driving it, but how freeing would it be for, you know, just taking a league off the top of my head because they've had members cycling in and out the summit league, it would probably be pretty freeing if they were able to say, well, okay, what if we took this, this school that plays baseball in division two and is really, really successful and we could have them play baseball in our league, but they don't have to play other sports in our league. They could stay at division two in some leagues, or they could go play in whatever, you know, whatever conference works best for them in basketball. And or the flip side of that, you know, Western Illinois or somebody could say like, well, we're interested in playing division one basketball, but we're not interested in doing this other stuff. Yeah. And so I've always been kind of on a, on a very base level using the Dallas Baptist example. I've always kind of wondered why that was allowed. And by the way, it went so well, like no one, there's no one complaining about that arrangement. Maybe the other teams in the Missouri Valley Conference kind of, you know, but I think they would even realize how good that's been for the league. So the Valley is happy with that arrangement. DBU is happy with that arrangement. Um, I, so there's not a lot of downside there. Like you have to be choosy about it in that case. I get it. You can't just, you know, you have to be very intentional with this, but that very narrow example has gone so well that the idea that we've, it seems like we've not really thought that, hey, how is this scalable and reproducible? It seems like the thought has never really gone there. It's always been like, well, yeah, that's a one-off. And it's like, okay, does it have to be? You know. Um, so again, that's, that's just one very narrow example of the ways in which I think this would free that up. Um, but it's the one that came to mind because it is the way in which you know, college baseball does have this little cutout for a very specific situation that I think would be great if we could just dispense with the idea that it has to be anything but that moving forward. Well, the, the one thing I would say, though, is that if um, if that were to come to pass, and obviously there are people that would be interested in a baseball only um, governance structure, that would seem to accelerate a split of the Division One baseball teams. Because if the whole idea of having a specific baseball governance structure would be to push through things like scholarship increases. You have a whole bunch of division one teams that are not at 11.7 that probably wouldn't go along with that. So I, that, that is a huge negative of it. Uh, if you are concerned about a potential division one split, which is something I, I, I'm not a huge fan of because I like the fact that they all play together. Um, but obviously there would be advantages to it. So, I mean, that, that that's one thing that, uh, that, that kind of, I guess, caught our fancy there. Um, the, the other intriguing thing, of course, is the, the NIL stuff. And, you know, we'll just have to wait and see where some of this goes on the baseball front. Um, we haven't seen a whole lot of deals yet. That doesn't mean that things aren't working behind the scenes. I have a feeling somebody before long is going to make a, a big move. Um, but like, like Matt said, they're just with this all being so new to potential sponsors, advertisers, whoever, the players themselves, agents working through it, the schools, the states, everyone involved, that it, it, it just gives you know, it takes 
a little bit longer to do some of that stuff. But now that all the players are back at school, probably a little easier to organize some some things. And uh, I'm going to be very interested to see where where that goes this fall from a, a baseball perspective. Yeah, I mean, that, that was interesting. So like that jogged my memory about something that I found interesting in the conversation, which was the point that he made about, you know, the students are just now getting back to campus. And I hadn't really considered that, that if the NIL marketplace seems a little slow to the outsider and like, I don't know whether to judge if it's been slow or not, because, you know, you've never done this before, but it has felt like, you know, there were some really splashy stuff right off the bat and then it, it kind of settled a little bit, but that is a good point. that <laughs> There are probably a lot of athletes that are like, well, I, you know, I kind of feel a little bit out on my own on this and I don't want to do something that's going to get me in trouble because, you know, let's be honest, even if, they've made it very clear that you can do this in their shoes. I can see how I'd be like, well, but I don't just want to take a stab at something because I don't want to get in trouble for something and all that stuff. So uh, the fact that kids are getting back on campus, I think is, is big for moving that forward. And I I also think the collective action, you almost need them there. So if you're going to see something like what BYU did, like you kind of need all of the walk-ons in place to, to talk through that or whatever. Yeah. And that's a, you know, I think this ties together with what we were just talking about a minute ago, where you talk about a potential division one split off in baseball, which I too am not for. I, I like that there is one division we have the opportunity for, you know, coastal is a bad example because they are a have versus a have not in baseball, but you know, Kent state getting to Omaha, that kind of thing. Um, Stony Brook getting to Omaha. Like I like the idea that that happens, even though it's the exception instead of the rule. I like all that. I also just, from a logistic standpoint, like if the top, cut off a division one is 40 teams do we just pull the cws from those 40 teams or even if it's 100 do we just pull 64 teams from the hunt like anyway that's obviously something that we <laughs> should that ever come to pass we'll talk about that but that's that those are the questions that i have but you know this is a way in which with the nil kind of using what byu football did as a model this is a way in which hey if you're someone who's involved with a program and and i know i've i know of examples in college baseball, where there is a very motivated baseball booster core that sometimes gets frustrated that they can't more directly contribute to baseball because their they their money gets funneled to like kind of more general athletics thing or you know whatever else they want to support baseball full stop. And so for those types of programs that have guys like that, um, I think there is an opportunity there for you to really make a difference. Um, Obviously, there's the stuff where you can you can put up money for a specific player to have them, you know, work do do some do some advertising or whatever it is for you. But I do think using the BYU model in a partial scholarship sport, as Matt pointed out, there's a real opportunity. If you consider yourself a if you want to be a have instead of a have not, and you're in a conference that maybe you're looking to elevate from, not in a literal sense, but just in terms of doing what Coastal did, for example, in the Big South. Um, you know, maybe there's an opportunity there. I think that's a really fascinating idea that I had, hadn't really considered from a baseball standpoint. Yeah, I mean, previously, you know, just a couple of years ago, we saw, you know, a, a, an anonymous booster drop all that money to Binghamton uh, for a stadium. And that was kind of the way you had to do it before. But now, I mean, and, and I do think that is going to have a transformative effect for Binghamton. To, to have like an SEC caliber stadium in the America East. But, you know, you can provide that a little more directly if, if that's the route you want to go down. And, you know, I, I think anything that happens in the SEC is probably just going to be repeated. And, 
you know, around the conference and it's going to be hard to really gain a significant advantage that way. But, you know, he mentioned, you know, obviously the Vanderbilt situation, but also he mentioned the, the academic aid that Texas, Georgia, Florida, uh, several states are able to provide. Uh, if you're in a state that doesn't have that, well, I mean, you, you know, that, that's long been a disadvantage for the, the schools in Mississippi and Alabama. Well, th- this could be a way to, uh, to go about making up some of that ground. I've actually been told that Vanderbilt's the only school that has um, extra aid they use for uh, baseball. That's what I've been told. That's uh, that's what they say on Twitter. That's yeah. that's for sure. Twitter and message boards have led me to believe that Vanderbilt <laughs> is the only school that has extra aid sitting around. Uh, but the Hope Scholarship is uh, it's, it's a real deal, and it's a really good deal for the the Georgia schools, as is Sunshine. Uh, in Florida, and I don't know what they call it in Texas. Joe, do you know what they call it? I do. I don't actually, but I, I'm I'm aware of it. Uh, but I, yeah, I don't. I don't know what it's. What the, yeah. What. So uh, all of that is uh, is 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 quite interesting. Joe, did you um, did, you, did we get anything else out of uh, out of Matt that, that surprised you or, or, or tripped your 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 your, your trigger? <laughs> yeah, I just think the idea that because I think this ties into, we talked about the new college baseball model. And I think we were right. We, we all kind of, it feels like we all kind of came to the same conclusion that um, cause you and I have talked about it offline. The reason I asked the question was kind of for the answer he gave, which is just like, these schools have a lot of stuff going on. Like shifting the college baseball calendar is not frankly a priority probably would not be a huge priority in great times, much less still dealing with the fallout of a pandemic year and how they're going to recoup what they lost, et cetera, et cetera. So building off that, though, the idea that, you know, if baseball is going to grow, it's probably going to have to come from stuff like the new college baseball model. And it was disappointing. And by that, I mean, I guess I should back up before I just leave that. By that, he, you know, he mentioned doing the work, showing the value, presenting it to administrators and saying, look, here, it's done. Read it at your leisure. Let me know what you think. But here it is. And then them being able to just kind of you know, I don't want to say rubber stamp it, but they basically say like, no, and here's why, or yes, let's pursue this without the the administrator having to do that, that legwork. And while I wish college baseball was not in a point, in a place where that was going to have to be the case, I I thought he spelled it out just right though, that as much as maybe we're disappointed that the, the momentum behind the new college baseball model didn't necessarily just like go straight to the moon to where now we're actually talking about implementation. um, I do think that the genius of that now that we've had some some distance on it, the genius of it was the way in which they rolled it out to where it was like, you know, here's all this information. It's been exhaustively researched and discussed. We've beaten this thing to death. Now go talk about it with your administrators. Um, I think that was that was a little bit of genius. And we don't know, we still don't know what's going to become of that or any other of the legislative stuff that college baseball wants to do. But it is very clear that we are still, as a sport, very much in the place where the legwork is going to probably have to be done on the front end by the people who don't really have the power to enact it. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's definitely true. You can't ask Ray Tanner and John Cohen and um, totally blanking on the few other ADs with significant baseball background. You can't ask them to do the whole thing. They've got, they got other things that they have to do. They, they aren't just the commissioner of college baseball, at least not yet. Um, and, and so you, you do have to meet people where they are 
And that means that people that are more invested in college baseball than, you know, the average uh, athletic administrator probably need to, to be the ones presenting the, the arguments and the, the plans to, to advance whatever proposals you've got. And that, you know, I've said this before, but the way that, that the arguments that, that are going to work for, for administrators are plans that either save them money or make them more money or just are clear benefits to student athletes. Yeah, no doubt. And I mean, that was the, the beauty of the, the model they put forth last year is in theory, at least it kind of touches on, touches on all those things. So we'll just kind of have to see, have to see where that goes from here. I mean, I, you know, right now it's, it's, it's nowhere is the answer. And that's just going to have to be the, be the reality. The, the last thing too, uh, you know, we talked a little bit about the small conference realignment and in a perfect world, I think we would have at least I would have, let me just speak for myself, would have dug in like a little more there. I mean, Joe um, wants a full episode on WAC realignment and man, where Sam Houston fits into it, it all. I want it so bad. I want it, so, like I mentioned, like I'm full sicko mode on that. But, but Joe, I mean, jokes aside, like, because I think there are motivations for all of those moves that are slightly different. I kind of just, for the sake of a jumping off point, said that FCS football is driving a lot of this. And I think that's true enough. Um, but I thought it was interesting that he talked about the motivations for the whack being as much basketball. And, and he admitted, you know, I haven't heard baseball yet, but um, it does show the motivations are a little bit different there. And so I, I, I think I would have liked to have dug in a little more on some of those individual ones. That's one of the things I, I failed to mention up top when we were kind of introducing him is, is one thing I can guarantee you is that he's talked to people in all of these leagues, <laughs> you know, like he's really beating the bushes on talking to administrators and people of interest in all of these conferences um, to try to get to the bottom of it. So um, I'm, you know, you and I have talked about, we're going to have to do an episode in the preseason next year that literally is just us reading off the teams that are in each conference, because it's going to be, it's going to be needed. And those, those conferences in particular, WAC, Southland, Aislinn, those are, those are the big ones. And I'll be, I'll be interested to see, you know, the example I use of Abilene Christian flying to play games at Sacramento state, like, um, you know, not just from the, sure, that's going to cost money, but also just, like, my goodness, those are tough trips. And, um, you know, you, I think you could see a situation where, you know, that, I don't want to say untenable because nothing is untenable, but just ends up being a little bit of a grind for those teams. And maybe they'll have to figure out something a little bit unique in terms of, in terms of scheduling and what have you. Well, I know from, from reading Matt that, you know, they, they've talked about in the WAC about how they feel like this new WAC can be a consistent two-bid NCAA basketball league. And that's significant for them because of the way the NCAA distributes basketball money, that being two bids means more money and being two bids gives you more of a chance to win a game or two. And that means even more money. So like, that's why the focus on basketball, but I, I also think that the new whack could be a pretty strong baseball league. And now the way that baseball tournament revenue is, is distributed, it's not the same. So they're, they're just not going to see it in the same way. But, you know, I mean, we've already seen Sacramento State, Grand Canyon, uh, New Mexico State, at least under Brian Green. Uh, you know, th th those teams really have something good going. Cal Baptist is not yet postseason eligible, but it, it has looked very good. And now you're bringing in these Texas schools. 
uh, including Sam Houston State, which has a super regional within the last few years. So I I like that league from a baseball standpoint. Um, it, it, it's not being crafted for baseball, um, but it, it, it is something that is potentially uh, pretty exciting from a baseball perspective. Totally agree. And it, it can kind of insulate the whack from some of the issues. You know, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago on the show about the West coast being so insular that sometimes it can, it can make things tough for conferences. And this does insulate the whack from some of that. It prevents some of it for the, from the whack standpoint, because you are going to get uh, to use a word that our friend Mike Rooney likes to hear on the podcast. This is for you runes uh, cross pollination with is that one word or two? Are you well, I guess it's technically that? two words. No, I think it's, I guess it's two. Um, so cross pollinate it's a phrase, I guess, more than a more than a word. But yeah, I don't think it I don't think it'd be hyphenated, but but they, you know, you, you are going to get the schedule cross-pollination where some of the teams, the Texas teams, are going to get the benefit of the fact that the WAC plays the Pac-12. So Grand Canyon's gonna play the Arizona schools and Cal Baptist is gonna play the schools in Southern California and so on and so forth. And the Texas schools are going to play, you know, some of the teams in the SEC, or, you know, potentially the SEC and the Big 12 and, you know, whatever's left of the Big 12 and uh, what have you. Dallas, they're going to play Dallas Baptist and all that's going to be pretty helpful. And it's going to give some more variety to the WAC in their non-conference stuff so that if the Pac-12 is not very good and the Big West is not very good, it makes it kind of hard for the WAC to really build much there in terms of a, that large profile. And it might still be hard in this new iteration of the WAC, but I think being able to have a bunch of different cracks at folding in um, high RPI stuff into schedules, even if you, you know, Cal Baptist it won't play Texas, but if somebody else plays Texas and wins a game off of them, that gets folded into Cal Baptist and that, that all helps. And so I'm with you. I mean, it's going to have to work hard. Um, all these low major leagues have to work hard to get a second team in, but I, I certainly think this new iteration, it's possible. Yeah, I mean, we talked last week about the idea of like what conference could like pop up and have a conference USA-esque year and the WAC is not going to suddenly have four teams in the tournament at some point. But you mentioned the A-Sun and the WAC can can do that. Uh, I, I don't see why I couldn't do that. Um, it's going to be one of these kind of overly large conferences and it'll have a distinct bottom and they're, they're never going to be able to bring the bring the whole bottom up to the top of the league. But, you know, that they, they should be able to, you know, put two bids in at, at some point. And, and that's just something that hasn't been possible for, for the WAC for many years, um, at least not since uh, in, in this current construction of, of the WAC. But I, I, like, I like its long-term future. And uh, if, as, as long as they're able to hold together, um, you know, what they have now, obviously there's, there's no reason to think that, you know, they won't, but it is just going to be an interesting arrangement that may take a little bit of uh, of finagling to to get the best arrangement for a conference that is now going to, as you said, regularly have to send schools um, from Texas to to California to Seattle to wherever else the the, the new WAC has schools. In some ways, it's kind of a throwback to you know the, the WAC that uh, the WAC that I grew up with was. You know, did you I, grow up on the WAC? I did not. I more grew up on Conference USA. I'm gonna be honest with you. I, I more grew up on Conference USA, but the WAC. I, I do recall the WAC that included, you know, Louisiana Tech and Rice, and they were making annual trips to Hawaii. 
you know, uh, to say nothing of the California schools, I guess in some ways Hawaii might be easier to get to in some cases, because you're probably just going to LA and then, you know, where you need to get in Hawaii, um, as opposed to getting on a bus and driving somewhere once you land. But um, so this is kind of returned to form for the WAC in some ways. This is this is what they were born into in a lot of ways. And, and so, I, you know, I think from a baseball standpoint, it's it's a positive. Like if we were going to go through and talk about how realignment has affected each of these conferences, I think you'd have to see the WAC as, as much more positive than, than any of the others, really, I think, because uh, they have added not just numbers and boy, have they added numbers, um, but they've also added some quality there, too. And I think that's going to be seen when it's all said and done. Absolutely. So we were, I, I, I'm happy we did this. I'm, I'm happy we dove into these off, off the field issues. They, they do affect a lot around college athletics and, and college baseball specifically. So glad we were able to, uh, to dive into them here on the baseball America college podcast. Um, we're going to be back to a little bit normal here, uh, as, as we get into September, um, bringing on guests from around college baseball once a week. Uh, so make sure you're subscribed to the Baseball America Baseball America podcast on your favorite podcasting app, be that Apple podcast, Stitcher, Spotify, anywhere you get your podcasts. You can follow Joe and me on Twitter. I'm at Ted Cahill. Joe is at Joe Healy BA. And again, if you're looking for Matt Brown, our great guest today, he is Matt Brown EP. Uh, all right. So till next week, uh, thank you guys for listening. Thank you to Rapsodo for presenting this and every edition of the Baseball America College podcast. I'm Joe. He's Teddy. I'm Teddy. He's Joe. We'll talk to We're you We're leaving next that time. in. We're leaving it in. <laughs> we'll talk to you next time on the Baseball America College podcast. say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.